Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Two weeks ago, when we were looking at Proverbs chapter 13, we also looked at the first two verses of chapter 14. So today, we're going to be starting at verse 3. But let's first talk in terms of big context, big ideas. There are some ideas that just come leaping out of the Proverbs from Solomon Some of those themes we've seen week by week. We're going to see some of those themes come up again tonight. But a new theme is developing in chapter 14. And then we're going to see it quoted again verbatim in chapter 16. It's a very big theme in Solomon's thinking. So I want to start tonight by kind of emphasizing it because it really is instructional to the whole rest of the chapter There is a way, says Solomon, there is a way that seems right to a man. Actually, the words seems right are added by the translator. The verse actually says, if it were translated directly from the Hebrew, there is a way right to a man. Human beings, one of the main characteristics that human beings have, one of the more astounding characteristics that human beings have, is that we have a remarkable ability to justify ourselves. Whatever it is that we do, we have the ability to say it's, it's not that bad. Even when we're doing things that we know inherently are wrong or questionable or even sinful, we have this ability to say, well, I'm not that bad. In the political environment in which we find ourselves right now, you you can see this demonstrated every day. Uh, The news from Washington right now is rife with new revelations of things that people have done that are questionable, that are illegal, that are not proper. And then when those people are confronted with their improprieties, Almost always their first answer is, yeah, but did you notice him? Yeah, but did you see that? He's also wrong. It's a a way of deflecting from your own responsibility and saying, yeah, but I'm not as bad as that guy over there. It's just another form of self-justifying. And so when people are raised in an environment, in a society where Even our leaders are so quick to self-justify. It's just natural that we would do the same thing whenever we're caught in our own wrongdoing, in our own wrongheadedness. Rather than admit to our fault, rather than admit to our own sinfulness, our first response is usually to say, well, I'm not that bad, especially when you compare me to what Hitler did especially when you compare me to Pol Pot, I'm not that bad. You know, compare me to Tom. And I'm doing pretty, I didn't mean to put you in the same category as Hitler and Paul. Self-justification. That is the way that seems right 
to men. Men just have this ability to think that their sin, their responsibility, their wrongdoing just isn't really that bad or really that wrong. One of the reasons that people, even God-fearing Christian people, end up messing around on the edges of sin more than they ought to is because they justify themselves by thinking that they're either strong enough or Christian enough or committed enough that even though this would harm somebody else, it's not going to harm me because I'm really strong in my faith. In other words, there is a way that seems right to me. There is a way that seems right to us individually. There is a method of walking, which is what that word way means. There's a method of walking out our lives that seems right to us. It seems correct to us. The question is, is it correct to God? The only proper way to walk out your life is to walk out your life according to what God's word says. Remembering again that the Fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. If you are wise, then you are going to walk according to God's words and God's statutes, and that is the proper way to walk. So the contrast that Solomon lays out is the way that you walk that you think is right according to you versus the way that is right according to God. And if you are walking in the way that is according to you, the end of that way, says verse 12, is the way of death, is the way of destruction. Because, remember this, human beings are sinful at their core. They have deceptive hearts. And so they're going to self-justify and they're going to walk out their life according to what they think is right. And if you walk that way, the result inevitably is going to be when you stand before God, he's going to hold you guilty on the basis of what you thought was right, but that he thought was wrong. So the best way to walk out your life is to walk according to what God's word has told you there is a way that seems right to men but the end of it is death and destruction so that is kind of the overarching theme of so much of what we're going to read here we're going to get maybe halfway through chapter 14 this evening as I already said we've looked at verses 1 and 2 I'll read them out real quick but you can just refer to last week's teaching The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. And he who walks in his own uprightness fears the Lord. He who is crooked in his ways despises God, despises him. I said last week that you can read those sentences forward and backwards. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. In other words, the man who fears the Lord walks uprightly. He who is crooked in his ways despises him. In other words, those that despise God walk in a crooked way. So you can read those forward or backward. That takes us to verse 3, and that was all introduction. In the mouth of the foolish, look how quickly Solomon goes back to your mouth, goes back to your speech. The whole idea of this verse is words have consequences. What you say, how you say it, has consequences. 
your words no matter what words you say every idle word everything you say to another person has consequences with your mouth with your words you can build people up you can encourage people you can make people feel better with your words you can cut people down you can destroy people you can hurt people I don't know if you know this about me but I'm a tad sarcastic no. yes I know oh, yes. shocking to so many people yeah, and, and I actually like sarcasm as a form of humor and a form of communication. I, I think it's effective. I like irony, a lost art in modern America, but I, I like those forms of humor. However, in my younger days, what I called sarcasm was actually just being caustic, just being hurtful. I used to damage people. And I found out the hard way that people would respond two different ways. One group of people were the ones that were hurt and let me know that they were hurt by my words. And of course, I would usually think in my egocentricity, I would think, well, then you just can't hang. <laughs> You're just not cool. You just don't get it. But I'll tell you the ones that really long-term caught up with me and were the hardest to deal with. It was the people who heard my words, said nothing, walked away with an opinion about me, who knew the kind of person I was now, who said nothing. They were willing to just kind of uh, take the hit, but they walked away with an opinion about the kind of person I was. And as a consequence, they didn't trust me. They didn't believe me. They wouldn't confide in me. I couldn't keep people's secrets. They knew that talking to me was a, a dangerous enterprise. And ultimately, that did me a great deal of damage because, as I've told you so many times before, there was the moment when my brother said, has it occurred to you that nobody likes you? And it was true at that point. And I realized that most of the people who did not like me had just cause to not like me. And the damage that I had done to them over the course of years, I had done with my mouth. Every bit of it was with my mouth. I hadn't hit anybody in the face. I hadn't stolen anybody's cars. I hadn't swiped anybody's girlfriend or taken anybody's money. I hadn't done anything to them physically. I just hurt people constantly with my mouth. Words have consequences. Now, the way that Solomon is going to put it here is he says... In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back. What he's saying is a foolish mouth brings punishment. A rod for his back is a form of punishment, not unlike caning, which still exists in some parts of the world where people are beaten as a form of punishment. And so Solomon says, that the way people talk, foolish people talk, and the way their mouth pronounces hurtful things to people results in them being punished in very severe ways because words have consequences. But the second half of that verse says, but the lips of the wise will preserve them, will protect them. Wise people use their words to encourage people, to build up people, 
to bring people to the Lord, to bring people to wisdom. And by doing that, they are preserving themselves. They're protecting themselves from punishment because they're making friends. They're making comrades. They're making people who trust them. They're making people who, who know that they can keep secrets. People know about them, that they are trustworthy folks by the words and the way that they use their language. And so you've got to be careful about how you speak, about what you do. Are your words encouraging people or are your words cutting people down? Are your words making fun of other people? Are your words sarcastic and caustic towards other people? If that's the way you're living, you're going to be one day found out and you're going to be suitably punished for it. You may not get a rod across the back the way Solomon describes it, but you may one day have somebody who loves you say, has it occurred to you that nobody likes you? One day it's going to catch up with you. Words have consequences. This is a theme that keeps showing up in Solomon's writing. He's talked a lot about the tongue of the foolish. And the damage that the tongue of the foolish does. Now, why does Solomon keep bringing that up? It's because it's that pervasive a problem. Have you ever heard yourself in your own life say these exact words to somebody? Here are the words. You say to them, I didn't mean it. If you've ever said that to somebody, and you know every one of you have said it. If you've ever said it, it's because you said something so hurtful to someone that once you realized the damage you had done to the relationship, you tried to convince them that the words you said to them, you didn't really mean. The problem is the people who are listening to you assume that if you said those words, you must mean those words. How often have I argued that God means what he says in his word? I keep arguing that if he didn't mean what he said here in these words, he would have used other words because he didn't say what he means. That's how language works. That's how communication works. You say things to people. People listen to you. They assume that you mean what you're saying. And then you, with your foolishness, find out, discover that you've really hurt somebody. Or you've run somebody away from you. Somebody who you didn't mean to run off and you end up saying, I didn't mean it. Well, you know, the only words you never have to eat are the ones you you never say. Mm -hmm. What's the old phrase? I've brought it up before. It's better to remain quiet and let people assume you're a fool. It's better to do that than to open your mouth and prove the point. Remove all doubt that you are, in fact, a fool. Your dad would say that to you so many times? Yeah, what does that say about you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, words have consequences. Use your mouth wisely. Verse 4. Sudden left turn. Where no oxen are, The manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. What is he talking about here? The word manger there can mean the feeding trough of the oxen. 
In other words, he's comparing somebody who has no oxen to somebody who does have oxen. If you have oxen and you have to take care of them, you have to feed them, you have to put them up, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. If you don't have the animal, then you don't have to clean up after the animal, and therefore your manger is clean. He is referring to the lazy person here when he says the person with the clean manger doesn't have any oxen. There are no oxen there, and that's why the manger is clean, because that guy doesn't get out and grow food. That guy doesn't get out and do the work. Yes, there's work involved with having the oxen, but... The good news is, if you have the oxen and you do the work, you get the much increase. So much increase comes to him who's willing to put in the effort. So here again, this is another one of those themes that we see Solomon returning to time and time again. The theme of this verse is, do the work. The theme of this verse is, don't be lazy. Don't sit around thinking that stuff is going to come to you. If you're not willing to get up, get out and do the work, you have no right to complain. Get up, go do the work. Even though the manger is clean, that's because there's no oxen. But by the strength of actually having oxen, that's where you're going to have increase. You're going to have food. You're going to be able to plow your fields. You're going to have more increase if you're willing to put in the work. Now, verse 5 Again, a big left turn from what we just read says, a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness speaks lies. Uh, The way to understand that verse is to start by understanding what a false witness is. A false witness is somebody who did not witness what they say they witnessed. That is a false witness. That is why among the Ten Commandments, there is a command not to be a false witness. When Jesus was in front of the council, when he was being accused, they couldn't find anybody that could really bring anything against him that would cause his death. And as a consequence, we read that they brought in a series of false Witnesses, people who would come in and say that they had seen him, that they had heard him, even though they did not see or hear the things that they claimed to be witness to. But a true witness is somebody who actually genuinely witnessed it. Therefore, they can come into a court of law, tell their story, and their story is going to be true because they have firsthand witnessing of what happened. When you speak to somebody who's actually seen, who is actually a witness, especially in court, their story, their tale is going to remain consistent. I do believe that I have told you before that one of the ways that cops will examine your story is once you tell them the series of events that took place leading to whatever it is, the accident or the event, they'll ask you to tell that story backwards. Because if you're telling the truth and you're really remembering what you actually saw, you can recite the events backwards. If you're making it up step by step, you're going to forget it when it comes time to take it backwards. 
A true witness is somebody who is going to tell the truth because they actually experienced it. But a false witness is going to speak lies. He must inherently be speaking lies because he is a false witness. So these are two sentences that you can again read forward or backwards. A faithful witness will not lie. One who does not lie is a faithful witness. A false witness speaks lies. Someone who's lying as a witness is a false witness. This idea comes up a couple of different times in this chapter. Look at verse 25. It says, a truthful witness saves lives, but he who speaks lies is treacherous. In other words, He's evil to the core. If he's willing to speak lies, if he's willing to be a false witness, he does not have the truth in mind, wisdom in mind. He's trying to cause trouble. He's trying to create guilt on behalf of somebody who's actually innocent. He's trying to do damage. Somebody who's willing to be a lying witness is inherently treacherous, but a truthful witness will tell the truth, which will result in saving lives which will result in the truth coming out, which will mean that innocent people don't get falsely accused. And so that saves lives. So Solomon, who acted as a judge in Jerusalem, would certainly know the difference between true and false witnesses, and he would have a lot to say about the necessity of people telling the actual truth, not telling something the way they wish it was. And once again, I won't say anything about Washington. No. The ESV says a false witness breathes out lies. Mm -hmm. The implication is it just comes out so easily they don't even have to form words, just breathe it out in their line. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's part of their character. It's part of their nature. They are false. They are treacherous. And as a consequence, they're going to lie because that is their nature. <clears throat> a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness has to speak, has to breathe out lies. Verse 6 then, a scoffer. In the past, we have identified a scoffer as a cynic, somebody who, when he hears the truth, automatically questions the truth or rejects the truth. A scoffer might seek understanding, knowledge, wisdom, but he finds none because his character, kind of like Tom was just saying, his character is such that he's a scoffer. He's a cynic. He, he doesn't accept the truth when he hears it. He doesn't accept instruction when he hears it. He doesn't accept any kind of correction. He doesn't accept anybody coming along behind him and saying, the better way to understand this is he's fully self-sufficient. And even though he might try to seek understanding on something, he's not able to. He's going to find none of it because his nature is automatically cynical. But knowledge is easy to him who has understanding. Now, Solomon is using a couple of synonymous terms here, saying that knowledge comes easy to somebody who has the character, the nature of understanding. That is his intrinsic ability. He's somebody that seeks understanding. He's somebody who can be corrected by understanding. He's somebody who doesn't take offense when he is instructed. 
by understanding. And so that kind of person, knowledge just comes easy to him. When he hears something that's true, when he hears a correction to what he thinks, he accepts it. He might measure it. He might determine the validity of it. But in the end, if it's true, he's going to accept it as true rather than being cynical about it. Now, there is a parallel verse here. Look at verse 33 in the same chapter. It says, wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding. So that's why I said a minute ago, that's his nature. That's his character. Because wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That wisdom rests in his heart. It comes from him internally, intrinsically. It rests in the heart of somebody who has that kind of understanding. But in the bosom, in the inward parts of fools, then it has to be made known. It doesn't rest inside them. Instruction has to come from outside them. Instruction has to come from people saying, no, you fool, it's like this. And they, being cynics, don't understand that, won't accept it, will reject it. And even though they claim that they're seeking wisdom and understanding, they're not because their own intrinsic cynicism keeps them from really understanding any of the important things in life. Let's see if we can apply this real quickly. Have you ever tried to tell somebody the very basic reality of wisdom, which is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you're talking to somebody who considers themselves smart, considers themselves wise in the ways of this world. And you're talking to them and you say to them, you know, fear of the Lord would be a good thing. I see the way you're walking. I see the way you're conducting yourself, the way that seems right to a man. But the end of that is death. And so I, as your friend, out of love, am going to tell you what you're doing is wrong, the way you're walking is wrong, and you need to fear the Lord. Well, if they are cynical, if they are full of their own self-knowledge, if they are self-willed and self-determined, they're not going to listen to you. But they think they're so wise. They think they're so clever. They think they know the ways of the world. But because of their cynicism, because of their God-hatingness, as a consequence, they can't understand real wisdom. And real wisdom is fear the Lord. Look, it doesn't matter how smart you are in this world or the ways of this world. It doesn't matter how deeply you understand political science or if you can play the flute or build a box skirt or bridge. It doesn't matter what you know about this time, this planet, the structure of this world. It doesn't matter because when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you about any of that. He's not going to ask you how good a musician you were. He's not going to ask you how clever a mathematician you were. He's not going to ask you if you understood the physical sciences. That's not what he's going to ask. He's going to judge you based on what you do with his son and how much fear you have of him, how much reverence you have of God. That is the determining factor for all of eternity. And so if your worldly wisdom and your cynicism and your self-satisfaction 
lead you to feel like nobody can tell you anything, nobody can correct you on anything, then you are the scoffer who claims to be seeking wisdom, but you're not really finding wisdom. You might be finding stuff, but you're not finding the genuine wisdom that will carry you into eternity. But knowledge, real knowledge, real understanding of God, his ways, his word, that kind of knowledge comes easy to the one who has that understanding. Here, I'll put it this way. If you have the spirit of God inside you, then the spirit of God is going to instruct you in the ways of God and the word of God. How many times have you heard me say, God's people are not offended by God's word? Why? Because they have God's spirit inside them, helping them to understand God's words, and then to adjust their thinking and adjust their life according to God's word. So they gain greater and greater knowledge of God's word, and it comes to them naturally because they have the spirit of God inside them. So knowledge actually becomes easy to him who has that internal understanding. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. But to the scoffer, he thinks he's smart. He seeks wisdom. He finds none. And they're a joy to be around. They really, really are. I was thinking that we probably all have met that person who is always the devil's advocate. Always. It doesn't matter what always. position you take. Yeah. They think they can, they can outsmart you. They can outthink mm-hmm. you. They can basically humiliate you mm-hmm. because they're so smart. Right. And, they can, and then what do they do? It's fun to be around. You talk about God to them. And they immediately put God on trial. What God do you mean? Yeah. yeah. They think they're the judge. They think they have the moral superiority. And God's the one who has to give an answer for himself to satisfy them. I can't worship any God who would let little children die of cancer. There it is. Yep. So now that I have suitably judged God, I refuse. Yeah. Boy, you're smart. <laughs> that was so smart. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have to disprove God. They expect you to prove God. Yeah, what they don't understand, since you said that, is that even their denial of God proves the word of God correct. Because the word of God already explains why they would be that way. And then they are that way, thinking that that proves their independence. And all it does is prove the validity of the word of God who explains why they are that way. I mean, Jesus said that when he said to the Pharisees, why don't you believe my word? Because you're not my sheep. (laughs) My sheep follow me. My sheep hear my voice. You don't follow because you're not my sheep. You don't understand my words. You don't get my ways. Not my sheep. So even Jesus was willing to explain why people reject him or try to put God on trial. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. But knowledge is easy to him who has understanding. Last week, we looked at verse 7, which says, leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. If you're hanging out with a bunch of goofballs, if you're hanging out 
with a bunch of fools all the time, then what are the chances you're going to come across the wisdom you need to get on with life and eternity? You're not going to come across that because the people that are around you are not only going to suppress that truth, they're going to keep you from hearing it. And when you do hear it, like Steve just said, they're immediately going to attack it. And so the advice from Solomon is, get away from them. Why are you hanging out with them? Why are you hanging out with a fool once he has proved himself to be a fool? Wisdom would be to get away from him and hang out with people who are actually going to help you advance in life and in eternity. Leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of wisdom. Verse 8, the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. So we began tonight by saying there is a way that seems right to a man. The end result of that way is going to be death, destruction. And so the wisdom of a wise man, a right-thinking man, the wisdom of the prudent is to think about, to understand, to comprehend his own way, his own walk the way he's conducting himself. That becomes more obvious when you look at the second part of the verse, which says, but the folly of fools is deceit, is lying. That's part of their foolishness. The foolishness of fools is to lie to themselves and tell themselves they're fine. Tell themselves they're okay. Tell themselves they don't, need that God tell themselves no the Bible we don't need that that, that's something somebody wrote 2,000 years ago we don't need to conduct our lives according to what that says they set themselves up as the judge of what is right and what is true but a prudent man a wise man understands thinks about comprehends his own way I think I've told you this story before. I'm pretty sure I have because at this point in life, I've just plumb run out of stories. <laughs> and so I'm going to repeat a story, I'm sure, here. I've told people before that when I hit 50, one of the things that was cataclysmic for me, a change of life for me at 50, was that for the first time, I learned how to think. And when people ask me, what do you mean by that, Jim? What what do you mean you learn to think? I say, well, up until now, everything in my life happened to me, and then I reacted to it. And I never seemed to get out in front of anything. I never seemed to stop, consider my own way, think about whether what I was doing made sense, What I'm doing right now, is that serving to advance my life? Or is this going to come back to haunt me later? Is this going to come back to damage me later? I was so busy reacting to everything that came my way that I never really got out in front of of life and thought about how am I conducting my life? How am I walking out my life? What are these things that I'm thinking about? What are these things that I'm watching? What are these things that I'm listening to? What about these people who I call my friends? 
Is my life making sense right now? Or am I still just reacting to it? I had to live till I was 50 to figure that one out. I'm hoping by telling you young people that, that you can gain the benefit of my experience and start now to think about what you're doing. And so Solomon says it this way, the wisdom of the wise, the prudent, the thinking people is to understand his way. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I here right now doing these things? Why am I making these decisions? Why am I conducting my life the way I am? And does this make any sense? He says that's what wisdom would do. But the folly of fools is to lie to themselves. The folly of fools is to say whatever happens in my life, whatever I do, no matter who I lie to, who I hurt, I'm fine. I'm justified. I can do whatever I want to do because I'm cool and I've decided I'm okay. And I, I'm okay, you're so-so. That's what I've decided about me. And, but that's foolishness. That's to lie to yourself. Wisdom is to understand your way because, again, there is a way that seems right to men, but it's leading to death. So it's important in this lifetime to understand your own way. Why do you conduct your life the way you do? Are you conducting your life in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom? Or are you conducting your life according to what you yourself have self-justified and set up as your own standard because you think you can justify your own decisions? And everybody, everybody, anybody, everybody on this planet has to deal with that question at some point. Are you willing to stand before God on the basis of you and what you think and what you have determined is right for you? Are you willing to try to make that case to God or are you going to get a grip on yourself and recognize that proper wisdom, proper prudence is to think about yourself, think about your life, think about your behavior, think about your mouth, think about the words you say, think about the ways that you conduct yourself with other people, think about the ways that you help people, build people up, encourage people, think about the ways that you tear people down, that you do damage to people, the ways that you hurt people. Really stop and take a full accounting of yourself and of your life and figure out whether you're conducting your life according to your own way, which the Bible tells us leads to death. Or are you going to take an account of yourself and recognize that true wisdom starts with the fear of God? That's Solomon's argument. The wisdom of the prudent, the right thinking, is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin. Now, I think at this point Solomon is not talking about sin as a general concept. We all know that all men are sinners or that we're born with a sin nature. Instead, what he's talking about here appears to be harming other people, hurting other people, which is sinful, but fools will mock at that. And the reason that I say that is that in a few verses, he's going to talk about 
how people deal with the poor. Look at verse 20. He says, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. That's as true in Solomon's day as it is today. Billy Holiday even wrote a song about it. And God bless the child that's got his own. There's a chorus in there that says, and when you've got money, you've got lots of friends hanging around your door. But when the money's gone and the spending ends, they don't come around anymore. Okay, same idea here. The poor are hated even by their neighbors, but those who love the rich are many. Look at verse 21. And he who despises his neighbor, the poor neighbor who he hates, he who despises his neighbor sins. So that's the kind of sin that I believe Solomon is talking about here. That despising of your neighbor, that hurting of your neighbors because of their poverty. And of course, the second half of verse 21 says, but happy, blessed, content is he who is gracious to the poor, who is kind to the poor. So there is a kind of sin that has to do with hurting other people, looking down on other people, taking advantage of other people. That kind of sin fools mock at. Fools make fun of that, think it's fun, think it's sport, take advantage of other people, get whatever you can get, get what you can get for yourself, even at the cost of other people. That is a sin, according to Solomon, but among the upright There's goodwill. The same way that he said that happy, blessed are those who are gracious to the poor. Over here in verse 9, he says, among the upright, there's goodwill toward people. If you generally have goodwill toward people, you're going to try to help people, lift people up, do right by people. Jesus said things like, those who curse you, don't curse them back. Love your enemy. Things like that. Difficult things, but it has to do with how you treat people. Among the upright, people who are right thinking, people who are upright in their heart, they're going to have goodwill toward people. They're not going to mock at the sin, the destruction, the harm, the hurting of people. And there are plenty of people in the world, even today, who I think fit in the category of people who mock at the harm of other people. People who gladly take advantage of other people. But the way of the upright is that they have goodwill toward other people. The heart, and this is a a really insightful proverb here, the heart knows its own bitterness. What Solomon's getting at there is you're the only one who knows what's going on inside you. I've told you before, because again, I've run out of stories, but I told you before that I was talking to one of my preacher friends, and he said to me, well, you don't know what it's like. He was talking about his situation, what he was going through. And he said to me, you don't know what it's like. And the truth is, uh, you're right, I don't. Because, and get this correct, because nobody knows what it's like to be anybody else. 
You only know your own experience. You only know your own heart. You only know your own body. You only know your own head. You don't know what it's like. Kyla has no idea what it's like to be Megan. Megan has no idea what it's like to be April. April has no idea what it's like to be Carol. They can love each other. They can enjoy each other's company. But they have no idea what's really going on in any of them. In fact, between them, when they say, hi, how you doing? They probably instantly and instinctively say, fine. Even though there might be pain in their heart even though there might be something going on in their life that is causing them a tremendous amount of emotional agony, they're the only one who gets to feel that. Even if you empathize with somebody else, even if they tell you their story, and you say, wow, that sounds painful, all you can do is enter into it from afar. I have likened it in the past because I'm out of new examples. I have... uh, I have likened it to going to somebody's house. People don't show slides anymore, do they? I'm really showing my age now. They'd probably break out their iPad and show you their digital photos that they took with their iPhone. But when I was growing up, you used to go to people's houses. They would show you slides. They'd set up the screen. They'd get out the slide projector. Everybody my age is going, yeah, I remember that. And then they would show you slides of their vacation. And you would have to sit through hundreds of slides of somebody else's good time. And that was called entertaining your guests. I have no idea why. And and I went to somebody's house one time and they showed me pictures of their vacation to Hawaii. And it looked beautiful. I couldn't enter into it. When they looked at the pictures, they remembered the feeling because they're the one who went through it. They're the one who actually experienced it. But all I could do was say, wow, that looks nice. Wow, that looks expensive. You know, wow, that looks like you had a great time. Okay, same deal. When somebody's hurting, when somebody's really in pain, when somebody's going through a hard time, when somebody is really agonizing internally, they might be able to describe it to you. They might be able to do the equivalent of showing you slides. They might be able to tell you the details of it. They might be able to tell you how many weeks and months they've been suffering with this. But in the end, all you can really do is say, wow, that looks tough. You can't really enter into it. You can't feel their pain. Their pain, their joy is theirs individually. And the individual heart feels it, knows it experiences it the heart knows its own bitterness nobody else can really know that but on the other hand the second half of verse 10 says and a stranger does not share its joy there are experiences in life that are just chock full of joy there are experiences in life that, that are just so happy that when you experience them, you're, just, you're dancing inside. You're just so thrilled. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Jennifer, the first time she saw her first grandson. Aww. Right? Look at her. Her face just lit up. I just said that, and her face, wee! Yeah. And you know what? That's a joy she feels 
unlike any of us feel it. We can watch it. We can see it on her. We can see it on her face. We can say, boy, that makes Jen really happy. But we don't share the same joy. It's not our grandchild. I know Carol shares that same joy, but not because of her grandchild, but because of your grandchild. And a stranger can't feel that joy. So the same way that the heart understands its own bitterness, the heart knows its own difficulties, at the same time, a stranger can't share in the joys. All we can do is what the New Testament tells us to do, that we should lift each other up when we find somebody struggling, when we find somebody in pain, when we find a difficulty that someone's going through, we should carry it for them, but we can't enter it the way they have. And then when they're joyful and celebrating, we should be joyful and celebrate with them. But it's still not as joyful for us as it is for them. The old adage is a pain that shared is half the pain. But joy that's shared is twice the joy. Okay, well, that's kind of what Solomon is getting at. And even though we can share our pain, it's our own heart that knows its own bitterness. And a stranger does not share the heart's joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. That's very basic righteous uprightness versus folly and foolishness. So often Solomon has said the outcome of the upright is going to be more positive and better than the outcome of the wicked. The house of the wicked is ultimately going to be destroyed. The beginning of this chapter said a wise woman builds up her house a foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Okay, well, that's the destruction of the house of a foolish person. There are so many ways that the house of the wicked can be destroyed. And even long-term, eternally, we know that the outcome of the wicked is going to be destruction. They and their house, apparently. Their name can disappear from the earth. We see several examples of that in the Old Testament. But the tent, the dwelling, the increase of the upright is flourishing. So the upright ultimately are going to flourish and take over the planet. We know that eschatologically. We know that the end of all things is going to be that the pots, the pans, the bridles on the horses are going to be holiness to the Lord. Ultimately, righteousness, uprightness, holiness is going to increase until it's taken over the world. I'm just expanding on what Solomon has said here, that ultimately the tent of the upright is going to flourish. And that takes us to verse 12, which is where we began tonight. And sure enough, right on time, man, without even trying, it turns out we're good at this. (laughs) There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I began tonight by trying to stress that we humans have this astounding capacity No matter what it is we do, no matter how many times we lie, no matter who we hurt, 
no matter how badly we use our mouth, no matter how much we put God on trial, no matter how cynical we are or how full of ourselves or the world's wisdom, we are just so quick to justify ourselves and say, but I'm not that bad. You, you pick the worst criminal on the planet, he will tell you why he did what he did. He may admit he was wrong, but in the end, he's going to say, but I did it because, and he's going to give you some justification for why he did the things he did because of this, what I'm calling remarkable ability to justify ourselves. I think it's a psychological thing, a self-protective thing that human beings just simply have because if any of us ever really came to grips with how truly corrupt and evil we are, we'd never get out of bed in the morning because we'd realize our own corruptness. Mass suicide would be on the brink. We we are self-protective. And so we tell ourselves that we're really not all that bad. And then once you've convinced yourself that you're really not all that bad, you'll start thinking, my ways aren't that bad. The way I conduct my life, the way I use my words, the people that I hurt, the chicanery I get into, the way that I enrich myself on the backs of other people, the ways that I make fun of the poor and I hold them down, the ways, everything that we've read so far in this chapter, all the ways that foolish people behave and act in this lifetime, they still have the ability to say, but, you know, that's, that's just my way. It's just how I am. You know, it's just, uh, hey, I got mine, you get yours. They're going to justify themselves. Have you ever seen the uh, bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins? What is that? What is that bumper sticker? It is a form of self-justification. It's a way of saying, yes, I'm greedy, but I'm going to put a positive spin on my greed and say that I win because I got more toys than you. This ability to justify ourselves and tell ourselves that our way is not really all that bad is what Solomon is referring to when he's saying there is a way that seems right to people. Just seems intrinsically right. And it starts from the time we are very, very young If your parents come into a room and you're the only person in the room and there's a broken vase on the floor, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. it. Nope. Maybe the cat did it. Maybe my brother did it. There was an earthquake. Something, the wind blew. I didn't do it. It was like that when I got here. I have no idea how this happened. Did you break this vase? No. Even though you know you did it. Because it starts out immediately in our sinful little brains where we start self-justifying and telling ourselves that we're really not that bad. And that is the way that is common to human beings. So common, in fact, that as I describe it, you're all agreeing and enjoying the examples. Because we all do it. It's just built into human beings. There is this way that seems right to human beings. And the end of it, the result of it, is death. The end of it is judgment by God. The end of it is outer darkness. The end of it is that God casts you eternally out of his presence. 
not just physical death, but eternal death is the result of your self-justification. So then what is the solution if self-justifying is the wrong way to do it? What's the right way to do it? The right way to do it is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Admit your own sin. Admit your own incapability. Admit that, yeah, the stuff I've done, the places I've been, the people I've hurt, the damage I've done, while I was busy thinking I was being cool and I was busy being brutal to people, forgive me, forgive me, God. Plead Christ. Plead his righteousness. You can't plead your own righteousness. You have no righteousness. But there is just that built-in astounding desire to say, I'm not that bad. Solomon said it 3,000 years ago or so. It's still true. It's as true now as the day that Solomon said it. And in fact, when we get to chapter 16, he's going to say it again, verbatim quote, same thing. Which means that this was a proverb that he said, we know at least twice. And when he said it, people thought, oh, we better write that down. That's, that's important. Think about that one. We better keep track of that one. It's going to keep showing up in the Proverbs. It's thematic. And I do think that it kind of gives us a, an insight into so many of Solomon's Proverbs. As he's talking about wisdom and foolishness, as he's comparing wisdom and foolishness, the end result, the overarching concept is just be aware that there is this way that men think is right. And it leads to death. So then wisdom, genuine prudence, genuine taking account of yourself and your own life and the way you're walking and being and doing and the way that you're treating other people, that way is the fear of the Lord. Start with the fear of the Lord. Start with what God's word says about you. Start with getting down on your face in front of that God. That is what wisdom looks like. Foolishness that results in death looks like us being the way we naturally are, which is self-justifying. You get the difference? And watch what you say. Watch what you do. Watch how you use your mouth. Encourage people, build up people, don't damage people. Are there any questions? I saw a bumper sticker that said, He who dies with the most toys still dies. Still dies. Yeah, that's, that's true. And then everybody else gets your toys. That's right. Yeah. Kyla, what'd you learn tonight? April, what'd you learn tonight? Watch my tongue. <laughs> Boy, we could all learn that one, couldn't we? James, what'd you learn tonight? I agree with staying away from fools and to bring in uh, wisdom. And there's certainly was a an example in my school where someone was foolish enough not to listen. He got sent out of school. There you go. Solomon's words come back in reality, just like that. What'd you learn tonight, Megan? I got about 20 years until I start thinking. (laughs) (laughs) She's your daughter. (laughs) 
I'm so sorry I asked. <laughs> Did you learn anything tonight, Carol? Yes. You glad you were here? Okay, I'm glad you were all here. Say good night to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.